Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are delighted to uh, come to you once again to have a conversation. Uh, I, from the safe state of uh, Texas, Dale in the extraordinarily unsafe state of Florida, uh, right in the center. He might even lose power during this very podcast because he's right in the center of a hurricane. But like most Floridians, I mean, he's only like a couple miles north of Mar-a-Lago, so give him just a little bit of a break. <laughs> uh, uh, poor Dale uh, doesn't know that he should be running away like all his friends are telling mm. him, but uh, believes that he will be safe on an island uh, off yes. the coast of we're, Western Florida. Dale. We're, we're actually, we're actually, we're actually, we're okay. Eastern the Florida. Storm- yeah, yeah, we're on the East Coast. We're on a little barrier island on the East Coast, on the Space Coast. And the storm is sort of coming up from the south, heading east. So we've been getting these bands that are just crazy weather, wind, rain. My street back here is a little flooded, but uh, tonight is where the real action will start to happen. So we're we're storing up water and ice, and we've got our gas for... Uh, grilling and uh, charcoal and yeah we're ready brother so floridian to like there's a hurricane so obviously we have to barbecue <laughs> yeah uh, that's right <laughs> so uh, uh uh but it's interesting metaphorically this is quite related to uh, uh mm. what we wanted to talk about which is the concept of doubling down uh, <laughs> uh the context in which we've been, and the reason we wanted to talk about this, Dale and I have been having an extensive number of conversations in the last week uh, about a lot of things, just things going on in our own institution, the Davenant Institute, where the Lord is doing a lot of work in all of our hearts, and where really, really good things are happening between all of our people. Uh uh, and, and in larger civilization, I have been, you know, kind of thinking about this in light of sort of political rhetoric. I've been trying to be a student of political rhetoric in the last year or so. And uh, I've been fascinated by uh, uh, the character of Roger Stone. I've been mentioning Roger Stone a lot in the uh, things that I say because I, I studied him just a little bit. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, one of the things that has, I think, kind of come along in the MAGA era, whether you like this or don't like it, there's some things to like about it, some things not to like about it. But one thing that I think we can all say uh, is that the the political posture of doubling down, uh, the, the rhetorical habit of yeah. doubling down has kind of increased in the hive mind. And part of this, going back to Roger Stone, is that Roger Stone really does see this as part of winning politically. One of the things that made the Trump campaign so effective is that uh, uh, you know Roger Stone basically advised Trump, uh, never, 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 never give an inch, ever, always, no matter what the issue is, if you're pressed, go a step further. So, And they can never keep up. You can't keep up. If you're always, always, always doubling down, but it does attract people, it kind of it kind of has a momentum. It gives you kind of the the aura of a winner uh, and that sort of thing. And you see a kind of um, if we didn't think the character of the presidency matters, you see, in fact, that daddy uh, uh, has led the psyche of all of us in a way that there is a deeper habit 
in the across the entire civilization, whether you like dad or you don't like dad, dad shapes you very deeply. <laughs> and one day way we have all been shaped by dad uh, uh, is that the mental habit, the spiritual habit of that kind of double downing rhetoric uh, has infected the hive mind, perhaps in a way uh, it, to a to a maybe uh, one way of putting that is to an intensity, to a to a level uh, that is uh, that I wouldn't say it was before. Maybe because it was so open, it was at such a crass level yeah. uh, that you lose the ability to be scandalized by it, and then the full demon of that habit is unleashed and unleashed on all of us because then the defense mechanism is to do the same thing because we got to win here, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're just sort of a snowball rolling down a hill of double downers right? Uh, that cannot but end in civilizational catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. I think one way to sort of get into the conversation, because let's talk about what it means to actually double down and let's talk about what it looks like to double down in different contexts. And so I want to propose sort of four different contexts that we can see someone double down. And then I'll go back and talk about maybe what I mean. And then maybe you can tell me what you mean. Yeah. Uh, you've already given us an example with Roger Stone and Trump. But I think that there's double downing that happens in the family, the church, the larger community, but also online. So, you know, using the, the very familiar sort of three spheres of authority, family, church and uh, the, the, the city. Yeah. Uh, but also adding a fourth one, which is online. The public sphere, you might say. Yeah, the public sphere, um, which is in a way global right now. It's sort of not the city. It's a global digital city. Of Maybe you just added a, a real actual social estate to Luther's three estates uh, that is an actual social public sphere phenomenon that didn't exist in his day. Maybe yeah. we actually have to talk about the four estates. Fascinating thought, brother. Please continue. Yeah. Well, and Brad Littlejohn uh, wrote that art, the great article. Um, I think you you guys studied it at your at your home gatherings on uh, a sort of digital feudalism. Yes. Yes. But but anyway. Um, all right. So, like, what does it look like to double down? A lot of what I'm going to say here is anecdotal, but I think it can be extrapolated and applied across the board in one form or another. So like my wife and I, she is my closest neighbor. Um, she knows me the best out of any other human in my life. Uh, I've been with her in, you know, for going on 15 years now. So our relationship is mature in a lot of ways. I mean, it's we've got a long way to go and we fight because that's what couples do. Um, and when we fight in our sort of immature years, it was the point of the fight was to prove the other person wrong to establish a sort of dominance in the relationship, right? Because two people don't really know each other. They have different preferences. They have different views in the world. And so you sort of butt heads until you get, become synchronized and grow into one, which takes time. And one of the things that I've tried to be very conscious about is by if my wife has a problem with me and she approaches me and she accuses me of something, whether that be moral failures or I'm just not seeing something clearly or I've offended her in a way that I'm not recognizing and she says it out loud to me. 
what I've tried to do is habituate a posture where the first move is to say, my wife loves me. I know that my wife loves me. So my wife is not part of a cosmic conspiracy to bring me down in some way in this moment. My wife is for me for the most part. So I remind myself of that. Number two, I'm a sinner and I'm capable of performing uh, and committing many sins. And if she's accusing me of a sin, then I would have to say, this sin that she's accusing me of, I know that it's within my capacity to sin like that, right? Think about Paul, uh, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So that's always on the, on the mind. And then uh, the third move is to say, uh, with, those, with those two things in, in mind, now let's discuss the merits of the claim. Uh, and if the merits of the claim are just obvious, then repentance is quick and it's immediate and uh, reconciliation can begin. Um, if it's not, then we can have a larger dialogue with the controlling force of the first two moves, which is to say, my wife loves me and I'm capable of sinning. That yeah, like way. I'm not incapable of being persuaded of this. I'm very happy. I, in fact, I want to be persuaded of this if it's true. Yes. And in that way, our communication lines have opened up and our relationship has flourished because both of us are practicing this. And what it requires is a deep, deep humility. And I'm not over here like, you know, I'm a very humble man. I am not. Oh, you're totally not, Dale. <laughs> right. You're like awful. Yes. And even though I'm laying you're this not. out, I, and I don't always practice this. So sometimes she comes to me and she says something, and I just like immediately double down. Uh, so my instinct is to double down. And I think most of our instincts are to double down when we are criticized uh, because there's a part of our identity that's sort of injured and our egos fill the vacuum and we act more confidently about our righteousness than we should. So we, in that way, we're self-deceiving. Um, so that's within the home. Within the church, uh, I think that on the leadership side, leaders can tend to, um, after a while of getting to know a congregation and forming intimate relationships and casting a vision and putting together all of the pieces of the puzzle to make the ship sail towards glory, uh, if somebody says something to the leadership of the church, they should have a humble posture. But in a lot of ways, I think that uh, they can uh, take a double down uh, approach precisely in the vein of righteousness, not to say that leaders are you know, wrong more times than they think. It is to say that leaders can be wrong and they, because they're in charge of the care of souls, need to be more sensitive to when they're wrong because the implications of them being wrong and then rendering a judgment ecclesially, ecclesiastically is spiritually dangerous. You, you err on the side, you know, it's better to uh, let an, a guilty man go than to convict an innocent man, in other words. And so church leaders need to have this and church members towards each other. And then within the community, if my neighbor says something to me, that changes because my neighbors might not really know me. And so if they accuse me of something, then that's going to hit little a little less home. And I can be a little bit more suspicious about that and investigate that a little bit more clearly. And then on the online community, if somebody comes on my Facebook and they're like, oh, you're a, a white nationalist fascist, you know, uh, totalitarian, whatever. And they don't know whatever. about you. Right. Then that is like, 
it can be immediately dismissed. And I don't need to sort of lay prostrate and say, am I actually this thing for the most part? But I'll let you fill in on that. Uh, you yeah, yeah, this is one of the things we talked about. And I think that's exactly right. Like where I think what you're saying is exactly right is there is a kind of range of the kind of moral structure of a response to the human uh, obtains through all of those estates in kind of diminishing returns, you might say, because they're mm -hmm. diminishing modes of knowledge and actual intimacy up to the point in the public sphere where your points of contact can be so thin that when somebody is making this totalizing judgment based upon like this singular data point, you can just be like, you, like mentally and psychologically, you don't have to take, like you in fact cannot uh, healthily live in a headspace of psychological stability and overtake that seriously. Or you will yeah. be in the modern day in a prison. Um, what I would say, I suppose, and I don't even really think this is a qualification. I just think this is an application. Um, the principle of two or three witnesses, I think, is really helpful because yeah. um, when I'm in online encounters, I think one of the things I think is, okay, person. Now, here's one thing I'll say. If a person comes to me and there's a criticism that is not in the label, like that's not predictable pause you don't need to just immediately internalize it and freak out about it but if it's not predictable if it's an odd criticism if it's an if it's a if it's a i hate to use the word a nuanced criticism you might say right then especially you should pause now that does not mean you immediately need to internalize it it does not mean you need immediately need to agree uh, but it does mean that it's like a bit hubristic not to at least say, hey, it's just responsible of me morally <laughs> to pause for a second and take this a bit seriously. You don't need to over obsess about it. Uh, in fact, that's the wrong move. One thing that the, the more scrupulous can do, and I suppose if I were in a Puritan age, uh, they would have diagnosed me quite quite accurately. Uh, with the with the vice of scrupulosity that is to say the person who's like has a tendency to overly obsess am i doing the right thing am i doing the right thing am i doing the right thing that's actually not to live in a headspace that's trusting of god all the christian soul really needs to be as a son of god rested in god and i'm not saying i'm those things but the christian soul <laughs> yeah. the one that believes which i have a little bit of uh that yeah. rests in god is a son of god that is the soul that is just open all you need to be is open to, hey, God, I want to know if I'm the person. And so when that person comes, you say, hey, I want to be open to maybe I'm the person. And then you think about it a bit, a responsible amount. You make a judgment. You don't need to like, you don't need to come to like a E equals MC squared level insight about it. You can right. pray to God. You can pray to God, who's your savior and say, hey, Lord, if I'm missing something, David, show you show me my hidden faults. David doesn't say, let me go kerplunk into the abyss of the soul and mm. illuminate it for myself. He says, <laughs> probably not a good idea. Lord, you just show me what's there. And I, yeah. think that, I think that we can do that. And I think that if you have that posture of openness, not again like self-loathing laceration, but just a posture of openness, and then you're able to say, all right, I'll listen. Uh, and then, Lord, 
uh, instead of obsessing about it, look a little bit. Maybe if it's not clear to you, you just pray to the God and say, Lord, you show me that through your word, through my conscience, through through clarity, not just caving into perfect to, to pressure, but the clarity of the mind show me the how you would have me be saved further. And yeah. I think I think if we take that posture, what happens in our online conversations is, okay, the person who's unique, maybe we're going to be a little cautious there. The person who's clearly unfair, what I can do is not render unto them the way they've rendered unto me. I'm offended by the way they've rendered unto me. And I would have them do unto me as I would have somebody do unto me. And right. what I want to do is not make a totalizing judgment about them on one witness. They saw one data point about me and they made a totalizing judgment. I know only one data point about them. And now I could make a totalizing judgment. And maybe instead what I should do is say, okay, this person is formed in a world where they have been told by every single human person that when they see this, all of this stuff should be said, stand up, speak out all the things. And that is exactly what they're doing. And that's a weakness. There's moral injury involved. This is a real human. Maybe what yeah. I can do is signal to them, hey, I actually do care about all that stuff, but I think this way of thinking about it is really wrong and destructive. Second witness, you've given them a chance to, to respond and show themselves in a second witness of themselves. Do when they hear that, do they say, oh, okay, let me hear more about that. Or do they double down? Right, right. <laughs> and when they double down, maybe you even give them a second chance. There's a point at which it, it can be as simple as a Twitter exchange. Do, 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 do. But there's a point at which you can say, okay, this person is not revealing themselves to be a person that is interested in a real conversation and I can write them off quite quickly. That becomes a little more complicated and that can happen in five minutes. Okay. So that's how quick that can happen. Uh, it's a little more complicated when you descend into the level of people that you know at church have embodied contact with an investment in communal shared friends, a little more complicated when it gets into your actual local neighbors that you're going to see in your kids and friends. And then it especially is complicated in the home when you have to get along. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You have to fight to get along. And there it's uh, the negotiation is much thicker and it should be much thicker. Yeah. And in that way, you could even say, you know, the home, your private home is a microcosm of the larger uh, of the larger, uh, you know, so we're little we're little platoons, we're little uh, societies and how that goes. So goes the whole. Right. I want to I want to I want to talk about something you said, you know, at the beginning, you talked about, you know, when dad does something, when he opens it up, this rhetorical move to sort of make one step further, never admit wrong. Uh, you know, it's almost like um, deny everything, uh, deflect, make counter accusations. Right. This is like the this is the rhetoric that wins politically. Uh, but the problem is, is that if that's imbibed. Uh, deeply than it can be done in your home to your ch children and your wife and your friends and your church. Uh, so we've got to be careful to make sure we're separating spheres, but also leaders as models of this. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to get into a big discussion about political strategies. That's not something that I'm deeply familiar with, and I don't want to act like I am. 
However, what I can say pretty confidently is if we have uh, leaders, political leaders that can demonstrate by their life, mm. by their public persona, this sort of uh, relation to criticism, um, then the people watching get a peek at something that is deeply Christian, right? I mean, think about the in the New Testament, the people that were doubling down all the time were the Pharisees, uh, and they were doing it for political reasons, and they were setting little rhetorical traps, uh, and Jesus is coming, and he's just moving in and out of them, and he's putting it back on them. First rhetorical ninja is Jesus, and and it's and and his in his ninjaness is like so far outside of my, my ability to grasp because the little textures inside of his rhetoric are just so deep. They're the wisdom there beyond you. Yeah, it's right. Incredible. Yeah, it really is. And when he puts it back on the Pharisee, what do they do? they double down like they always double down and the ones that don't those are the ones that are saved because the kingdom belongs to the meek and the the, the kingdom belongs to the humble and humility i think is um a virtue that we don't see modeled in our public lives so much and particularly you brought up twitter i'll talk about twitter and sort of facebook I have, I, well, I shouldn't say never, I don't want to overplay my hand here, but I have very, very rarely seen contentious uh, uh, conversations in the comment sections of posts, wherein one of the parties says, you know what, that's a good point. I'm sorry I misspoke. Thank you for correcting me. Because all of the eyes of their, like in their imagination, the currency the eye, is attention. Yeah, exactly. And our relationship to shame, particularly public shame, is so, um, so uh, visceral in this self-expressive individualistic society we live it in. It might be, you say, a little pagan in nature. Yes, very pagan in nature, uh, where there's a catharsis that needs to be worked out through my rage. And that is what I'm looking for, rather than a, a sort of helpful voice to, to guide me into further depths of wisdom. And I don't see that. And I know that somebody could come and criticize what we're saying and do all the things, but like in front of your eyeballs, whoever listens to this podcast, go on Twitter and just like keep a little tick mark about how many times you see somebody not double down and admit wrong and say thank you for helping me think better <laughs> just like see if you can find it and if you can't then you'd at least have to grant me that point um yeah and and, and so what i'm what i what i what i'm saying here is uh last thing and then i'll be quiet joe is uh if we're not getting this from our leaders in the public sphere then we should be the people that model it. If for no other reason it it is what we're called to do as Christians, but also for our families. Um, and so I want my children to, when I die, I want my kids to skid up at the podium and say, my dad was a humble man that listened to me and he always responded to me when I criticized him. Uh, you know, so that's like your legacy. 
and the Proverbs talk about how a good name is better than gold and silver. And so you're protecting your name, especially in this global conversation of. And what uh, is the Ecclesiastes religion. parallel? You also you always quote the uh, the young man and the old man. Yeah, the- Solomon says, I'd rather be a poor young uh, beggar than an old king. No, a poor young wise man rather than an old king uh, who doesn't know how to take correction. Mm. Like Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. <laughs> uh, this is his advice. So, Yeah, and I think, I think one of the things that's behind this is we live in an age that's deeply pharisaical on both sides. You could look at wokeism as a kind of secular inversion and tom holland gets at this in his really excellent book dominion um that you could look at wokeism as a kind of real secular inversion of the crassest form of kind of puritanism in the bad sense right um but so is in its same mentality the rest of us i mean this is the thing we're all one country right it's the same family it's a family feud. They all look the same. When they talk about each other, they use the same kind of graphics. They use the same kind of political rhetoric. And the reason the rhetoric has gone up is because it's clear that it wins. And so what's the left going to do? They're, they're just going to match the rhetoric with the same thing. And then you get Joe Biden <laughs> looking like Hitler, <laughs> right, with, right, right. you know, red lights behind, uh, you know, that, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but, but, fundamentally i think behind what we're saying especially at a moment like this of kind of global populism of 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 deep psychological civilizational and political fragility the the shift of the overton window makes both both creates a lot of possibilities but it also creates a lot of risks and the mm. question at a time like this that any sane human has to be asking themselves just as you have to be if you are living in the 1930s in Germany is am I the guy am I the person who whatever the the, the sinister project looks like whatever the human it doesn't have to be the Jews it doesn't have to be anything but have you inculcated a habit of thought that looks at an entire portion of civilization in a completely distancing, calloused, mm. unattached, instrumentalizing way. And I think what like even a Jordan Peterson, I mean, this is like his old stuff in Maps of Meaning, right? It's like right. the moral probability that you, that you're the person who's not the guy is it's, it's astronomically improbable that it's you right. who is actually not doing that. And I think Jordan Peterson himself risks doing this, actually. Mm. Like the, the the moral probability, just because you're aware that it could be you doesn't even mean it to you. And again, you don't get scrupulous about this. You say, God mm-hmm. save me. And then in yes. fact, one of the things Dale and I want to say in this podcast, I think this is one of the one of the most important things, uh, is that none of this comes from any, you know, sensation that we're the guys who figured out. Right that we can that we're not this thing and we're talking to people as though they haven't figured it out no <laughs> we actually need Jesus Christ himself to descend from on high 
through yes. the Holy Spirit to fill us with the spirit of love to save us every day, every moment of every day from being coming that thing. And I actually think that's the thing that's missing from Jordan Peterson's message is actually the only way ultimately to avoid that is to be saved. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean that in the broad sense. I, I just mean that like whether it be by the grace that we could call providence or the special salvation that comes in Jesus Christ and reconciles you to God directly, uh, that uh, nevertheless human beings have to be saved by God from descent into this habit of soul. And I think what we could add to that, actually, it's a thing that I reflect on a lot now. It is perhaps the case that in a civilization like ours that is so on the brink of destruction, that is so fragile in its alliances uh, so unattached to one another with love uh, that it actually does take an enormous amount of actual saving grace style redemption yes. in the hive mind to energize with real Christian love that energy that can actually move out of the self toward another human being uh, uh, fed fed deeply in the soul on the fact that God didn't look at my pathetic reign and abandon me, yes. but actually redeemed me through Jesus. And therefore, yes. when I look on my brethren, I'm jealous for them. I am like my father who was jealous for me, and I'm jealous for them who are not redeemed in their reign. Yes. Very good. Yeah, it really is. You know, it's so weird, man. Like you and I talk about so many things, Joe, and we go so many different ways and um, and even like the last two weeks, Joe and I have literally been talking for hours a day <laughs> um, just because there's a lot going on in the world. But at the end of it, at the bottom of it all is just the basic repent and believe, right? Like repent and believe, feel the, receive the gift of repentance and believe on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ and cast your cares upon him. This is Christianity. Uh, and so as, as, as nuanced and as complex as we can talk about social ills and our own sort of internal struggles, repent and believe. Uh, you brought up David earlier, and that, that I think is the, we're talking, I was talking about models. Uh, you know, Nathan approaches David and the move there is so wise because Nathan's like, hey, David, so there's this dude that does these things and isn't this horrible and david's like absolutely kill him uh and nathan's <laughs> right. like well you're the man you are the man uh so to your point earlier uh i think we have biblical precedent to think am i the man uh not is my neighbor over there the man or is that person on the internet the man or is that purple-haired woman shouting her abortion the person but am i the man and is our response like david where it was immediate where where the 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 dawn of what the indictment it was against david crashes down on the conscious mind in such a way that immediately provokes repentance mm. is that what is our yeah. typical algorithm towards criticism or is it the other way and the very few moments that we do publicly repent when it's obvious that we are the ones uh that are at fault like, where, where's where what what are the scales of justice in your life 
where are you more prone? And this gets to the sort of Aristotelian mean, I think. And some people will say, well, cancel culture. Everyone's out here apologizing. Those are fake apologies for the sake of a pragmatic program. I'm talking about the real genuine internal move of the soul to recognize when people have called you out on something that is just demonstrably wicked. And are you like David? Uh, who was it that did that sermon? You're not David. Uh, who was that? I don't know. Oh, man. All right. Whatever. Somebody will put it in the comments. But it's like, no, in this instance, you are David. <laughs> you are literally <laughs> right. David. Right. Literally. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things I think is fascinating about that encounter. Nathan doesn't and God doesn't do this with us, interestingly. Not not well, well I, I won't say never. But in a way, never. Uh, if you factor actually all the factors in, but 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 Nathan is maybe a proof of this. Nathan doesn't just come in and say, "Hey, David, uh, you committed adultery and killed." The and one one part of that is that that could get in David's defense mechanisms, right? It's sort of like, "Well, I'm an ancient Near Eastern king," like looking right. at a woman and pointing and saying, "Bring her here." That's just, I know, yeah, maybe that's not the greatest thing to do, but like that's like you look around the world that's just kind of how the system works you yes. know what nathan rather does is appeal to david by virtue of his own dignity uh hey look at this story what do you think about that and david has a a, a proper a proper outrageous reaction and then in the moment of feeling his own dignity his own kingliness relative to real injustice nathan can come in here and just paint it all and say mm. look you're exactly that thing and i think one of the things that is lost in our civilization is that we don't move each other by our mutual dignity we move each other through shame yes. and there is shame there is shame that is produced that's real shame. It's not manufactured. It's not just shoved into the consciousness through screaming or something like that. There is shame that's produced in David, but it's produced in him. It's not shoved into him. Yeah. It's produced in him by activating that, which is most dignified in his soul and then getting him to see himself. And it's actually making the king stand up. It's not bashing the king or the yes, queen down. exactly. It's getting the king or the queen to stand up and yeah. then see themselves. That's actually the move that God does to us and has done to each of us. And the opposite of that is paganism. You know, like I see all these guys walking around these days talking about like, oh, weak men, weakness, weakness, weakness. Bah. Bavink identifies this as the background of fascism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, now, that is celsus right mm -hmm. that's that's pagan celsus the original critic of christianity in an age and in a and in a moral system of pagan cathartic rage staring at this new religion and its treatment of bodies its treatment of women its treatment of slaves and it's saying those guys it's the nietzschean critique those guys want weakness it's gibbons critique yeah <laughs> christianity has the poison 
of its relationship to weakness because what Christianity will not do is look at another human face and reduce the relationship that we have to them to one of disgust. It will always first, just as God's loving providence is always a face in front of his of his judgment, so is the Christian face of love and the seeing of the dignity of a human being whose reign we would redeem always in the face of disgust about sin. And if that's yeah. not there, we are not Christians and we are not saving civilization. We are hurting civilization because especially at this point in civilization, we don't live, we don't live in a context where it's, you know, all the healthy families over there looking at all the crap ones, you know, you know, the minority communities in the urban spaces and the hair, like, like they're going to get it together. The broken family. We as a people, we as churches, we as most of our private lives come from and often incubate in very broken families. And the attitude I see emerging in a lot of America and a lot of churches and a lot of the way people relate to each other is as though uh, what you do with the broken family is say, ah, you know, I ain't going to work out. Let's just go over here and like go. Right. To well, if we actually took those principles writ small, uh, you would have to tell most broken marriages to divorce and yeah. most broken fathers to abandon their children. America's of America, our churches, they're very deeply fractured and broken families. But what's actually the ideal outcome to the broken family? It's to say, I can live in hope and I can actually fight for something that looks impossible. And you and I aren't speaking in abstraction here. You and I are speaking in concrete, actual freaking human existence yeah, yeah, <laughs> here. Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. It's not right. easy to have a family when you come from, in fact, right after we press stop record here in this podcast, I'm going to marriage counseling. And I'm okay yeah. with saying that out loud because it's hard for me to have a family. It's it's not easy for me to know how to do the thing well. Uh, sure. and, and part of that, I think part of my, uh, my view of human relationships and my sense of what does it mean to actually hold a country together comes from that because there's part of me that's like, I hear things that if I applied in my own home, like if I wrote those small, I wouldn't have a home. And I have to fight for my home. I have to fight against my sin in a real way for yes. my home to be a, a coherent home. I have to work hard. Uh, I don't even want to put it that way. I have to receive the love of God and drink of it extremely deeply for me to be healed enough to do what I need to do. And I think there's a there's a way in which, you know, when I look at the country at this point, I almost think like, I don't know what we're going to do apart yeah. from the Bible. I don't know that there is actually a political solution to our problems. I wonder if, in fact, they're a winning if the, the, the that approach to winning, which literally says this is a statement of Roger Stone. Hate is a more powerful social force than love. And most sure. of the time that's true, except when there's a movement of the spirit of God. And I hope that happens. Uh, because I do actually wonder if that is the only thing that will save us. Yeah. And I mean, all you're doing is talking about the virtue of patriotism, the love of your land and the love of your people and your people are yeah. the people that are here. Yeah. And that what gets... country did you actually grow up in? It's the city you despise and it's the 50 states. What people mostly want is not this country. They want their right. LARPing. They have a fake loyalty. No, I shouldn't say people. A lot of people have a fake loyalty to a future country they hope exists on the other side of a war. 
Yes. And in their imaginations, they've crafted out exactly what that would be like. And then they judge everything uh, in terms of what our current condition, our current state fails to accomplish in their imaginations of a future utopia. And in that way, that's a very sort of like Marxist, communistic understanding of the direction of history. We're all Jacobins now. I've, I've right. long thought this, that we're we're cynical, deeply cynical about the the possibilities of things and of course cynicism breeds cynicism it makes us act like cynics and i think we are cosmically of all people in the history of the human race in some ways we don't really believe in god we don't right. really believe in miracles we don't really believe in grace we are cynic like we believe in those things very theoretically but god is not actually living he's not yeah. actually going to come here and help this family what we know is really going on is that at the end of the day you kind of got to do this and i think that's re i think that cosmic cynicism at the level of our hopes and our imaginations is slowly killing our soul and i think the sad thing is what you find if you fight for a family and the family begins to live again is that families are be every family's beautiful. There's yep. a good, there's a good to be fought for. And I think one thing we could say about our churches and about America uh, is that the 50 States, the whole of its people and all of its people, whether they be woke or red pilled, uh, there is something that actually unites them that could actually become a source of mutual affirmation of greatness. There is still a dignity and a greatness in the people uh, that I think needs to be uh, uh, needs to be reimagined. Uh, uh, Albert Murray, this is a book I think Dale and I are going to wind up reading in the next month, but Albert Murray is this African-American commenter on race. And one of the things he does, as I understand it, is sort of compare America to jazz and blues just as the and this is not true of many countries like when you see populist movements in other countries uh the the relationship of a populist movement to race is very tight because most countries have are are, are you know, 90 percent one thing in america one of the tensions in kind of the populist movements going on in america right now uh is that there are some people that want to fuse that movement with race but mm. the question is can america can we, literally who we already always are, just as an inheritance, whether we like it or not, can we actually really say our people is is so tied to race? And what Albert Murray in his famous book, Omni-Americans, which we're going to read, apparently argues is that America is kind of like jazz, uh, which is a singular dance of all of these forms of music. It inherits very different forms of music and it doesn't mean those other forms of music don't continue to exist kind of in their own right with their own vibe, but there's also this fusion of them, this dance between them that becomes the music of jazz. He's right. Albert Murray writes about this in his book, Omni Americans. Uh, uh, and, and one way of looking at American civilization and, and, and really this is <laughs> the outworking of a Protestant vision, which comes from the new Testament, which is the mutual giving of gifts America, partially because of its sins, was originally a country that always had Native Americans, always had an enormous amount of people from the South, you know, South Americans, and always had 
largely due to sin, <laughs> uh, African-Americans always, there never was just a nation of whites. There was a nation with whites and all of these bodies are literally always mixed up with our bodies. And that fusion for a long time was a tension and what you begin to see to be the genius of the American formula. And what is in some ways our greatness is jazz. This is Albert yeah. Murray's argument. It's that the musical achievement of jazz can be paired with the civilizational achievement of very difficult to bring together streams. And what can happen if reconciliation real? I don't mean the trivial, trite, right? You know, a lot well, of racial that's... reconciliation discourse can be very trite. I'm actually talking about kings coming together, kings and queens coming together and really negotiating as independent sovereigns and yeah. fusing their vibes while being able to have their own communities. It's like, it doesn't like, look, if the black if people want a black neighborhood where they can vibe with mostly African-American folks and all that sort of thing. Like, of course. Sure. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I think that gets to like the, the, I'll say two more things and then, and then we'll start to shut it down. Yes, sir. Um, so two more comments and then I'll throw it back to you and then you can have the last word and we'll take it out. Uh, but I think what you're talking about is we're always looking for a solution. Um, when we should be just looking, given your 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 comments about jazz, we should be looking to live in tension, uh, because tension, when you can hold things in tension, is actually where the harmony comes. Think about a guitar string, right? A guitar string is taut and it's held in tension, and when they're perfect, when they're tuned correctly, and you strum all of the strings in tension, they make a harmonious sound same thing with piano strings um same thing with the cosmos uh you know so and math a lot of times what we think is like well if we figure out the proper uh algebraic formula and then apply a theory to it in order to come up with the answer then we've actually solved the dilemma and um it's noble to look for solutions that 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 require them, but most things in this country just require you to hold them harmoniously in tension, um, because a lot of things cannot be resolved. And when you try to propose various solutions to the singular problem, number one, not everybody thinks the problem is the same, and therefore they create different theories about how to solve the problem, and then they end up coming up with different solutions. And then what happens when you have a whole bunch of different solutions that are not the same, you create more problems that need to be solved. Uh, and so most of the time, you just need to sort of hold things in tension in a way that uh, uh, produces harmony amongst us. Um, so that's one thing just on that point. But the last thing I want to say about this sort of doubling down that we're talking about here is how important, and I said this earlier, but I want to sort of close with an emphasis on it, mm. how important it is for leaders, uh, leaders of churches, uh, politicians, leaders of homes, leaders of communities, how important leaders of the public sphere, the fourth the, estate. Exactly. Leaders that have a voice on Twitter. Uh, how important it is for them to imbibe this sort of humble posture to criticism, because not only are they setting an example, that's a sort of pragmatic purpose, and it's a good one, a healthy one, but also for their own souls. 
Because if you habituate a posture towards criticism, wherein you're always looking to sort of like get the, the fine little sliver between the chinks of the armor of your enemy to like hit their organ and leave their body lifeless in all of your rhetoric without actually ever receiving the correction that some people are trying to give you whether or not it's like accurately aimed uh then your heart can get hard and the way that i can if i was the devil what i think i would do is i would convince people in roles of leadership to never ever receive criticism in any way other than an attack on their mission which is righteousness and so most yeah. leaders, especially in Christian conservative circles, everything it's is like, a, a martyr story. Yes. It's like, that's the devil out there. The devil has a hold of them and I'm the soldier of righteousness and their criticisms of me is the devil trying to take me down because I'm doing something important. And of course the devil doesn't want my thing to exist because that's what the, de the devil wants to crush yeah. all of the, because when it's obviously like, like me. <laughs> yeah exactly yes and and that's a real temptation and i feel that i mean i'm in some leadership roles in yeah. my community and in my home and i feel that and so like i have to want like you said instead of doing the scrupulosity thing where i sort of like go into spirals of ocd moral justifications and tinkerings with my own soul i just have to say god please save me from that uh but that only comes out of a recognition that i am the man uh and i very well could be the man in situations that I know I'm tempted to be the man in. Uh, so that's my, that's my last word on this idea of doubling down. Yeah. I think the last thing I'll say is, and I think it's just a, uh, a fair qualification to make is that um, you can just, you're, you're emphasizing, and I think in a, a very wisely, like this is especially crucial for teachers and I also think the public judgment on teachers, like one of the things we should distinguish in our reactions to people that I think is very important is the is the reactions we have to teachers versus the reactions we have to other people. In other words, um, you know, when there's the person who has like four Twitter followers and they're mean to you or something, it's like that person is not influencing the world. I can actually I can actually engage with them a bit because they're just a human and like they they probably don't know what they're doing <laughs> right, right, uh right. that you know that I, I hate to put it that way but it's like they're, yes, they're the more not, twitter followers you have you know what you're doing the more you yeah, know or, or just, or just <laughs> there's people who say things to you like where they're not spreading the disease very right. much right they're just a they're they're the pawnest of pawns and that especially is the person don't punch down to that person don't use them. Don't instrumentalize them for your ego or to make a point and to look cool. Minister to that person if you can. With teachers who are kind of stubbornly, aggressively showing a pattern. So the two or three witnesses thing happens very quickly with teachers because teachers give you a lot of data points about who they are. And so the the punch might come relatively immediately not because you've had a lot of encounters with them but because there's a lot of data points sure. uh, and i think that's why paul you know when paul paul can just go right after teachers uh uh I, paul can go right after teachers and i think the other thing to say is none of the things we're saying again la uh, last qualification i suppose 
the other thing we're saying is that, or the other thing we're not saying, uh, and, and it's and it's kind of morally consonant with the point about teachers, is that there are some things that can be opposed very loudly, very quickly, and ought to be. It's like yeah. none of nothing we're saying is against the idea. Uh, doubling that we that we don't have a habit of doubling down does not mean we can't say that like hey if you can introduce and pass legislation that prevents the uh, chemical castration of minorities we'll sign the bill uh, it is okay to be very aggressive <laughs> right it's okay to be politically aggressive against great evils now that the What's dangerous is that the actors of political aggression can very easily be the sorts of persons who are constitutionally unopened to criticism. And it is actually that fusion that, the you know, again, you talk about the devil. It's actually that fusion that is most judicious for the devil, because then the political, <laughs> the kind of political momentum that is actually getting something done is so detestable on the human level uh, uh, that, that that it can't persuade anybody and can only and will inevitably become a source of further civilizational tension and the ultimate collapse of a civilization. It's actually yes. for the disunity and disintegration of the human race and human community. Yes. All right. I lied. This is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll yeah. take us out. Uh, yes. So you, precisely, Joe. And the person I think that would start to criticize in that direction on what we're saying enters into a whataboutism. And the only thing I would say to them is, when is the last time that you've done what we're talking about? When is the last time that you personally have ever whether it be on social media, in your home, how often is the practice of you closely examining criticism and then leaning into the criticism, absorbing the criticism, repenting and looking for reconciliation? How often does that happen in your life? Uh, of course, we need to make prudential judgments, but I think that if you know the qualifications are necessary, but most of our interlocutors that would say, yeah, but what about it's like, what about you? What, what about your life? Uh, you know, and that's something that only they can answer. And, um, you know, so that I would just say that's that's the last thing I'll say. Yeah. And I think it just very last thing I'll say then is. <laughs> yes. Uh, 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 that convicts me, too. Me too. You know, you know, so that convicts me too. And again, the goal here is not it. It's not shame, actually. Uh, it, you can feel shame from that, but the goal again is actually uh, a, a summons to a lost dignity. God Himself is love and all of gift, and creation is all gift, and that descends into the whole world it descends into nations it descends into our salvation it's all gift and am i does it descend all the way into me and in my relationship to precisely the people i find myself among precisely the nation that i find myself in and all of that is to say you know i don't think we'd want any of this to be it, 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 none of the things we're saying are an us versus them thing it really is an us thing. Most of the things we're saying are things we can say because 
we are the man. And in fact, even as you talk about it out loud, it's like, wow, I'm more the man than I think that I am. And that's not coming from scrupulosity. That's coming from just being real. (laughs) That's just coming from being an ordinary sinner. Uh, And yet calling others to think on these things is not to shame them. It's actually a relief. It's actually, again, to summon to a lost dignity because, in fact, this is the way of Christ. If you're after Christendom, Chris, there's Christ in that word, Christendom. Right, right. <laughs> if you're after, uh, if you even like the phrase Christian nation, who's Jesus? What's he actually like? What does it actually seem like? What are the fruits of the spirit? Love, peace, joy, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. <laughs> right, right, right. Do you hear those words? Actually go pull up Galatians 5, read those precise words and say, do you want a civilization full of those things? What do those things actually look like and accomplish in a human race? Yeah. Amen, brother. This is a good conversation. Uh, Maybe next time we talk, we should talk more explicitly about shame. um, Mm. Because I have some thoughts about that, too. So maybe maybe the next time you and I are together. But all right. uh, As always, Davenant Institute on uh, YouTube, all of our other stuff. You can check us out on iTunes and all the other podcast things. Uh, I'm going to go attend to uh, the hurricane and uh, pour myself a glass of wine, brother, and stare out my front window at uh, the trees blowing and the wind falling and hope that, uh, yeah, it doesn't get too bad. So I'll see you next week, brother. Yes, yes. All right, everyone. Joe, I love you. Thank you, brother. Love you too, man. We'll see y'all next time. See ya.